The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. Today, we're going to be talking about insomnia and behavioral treatments for insomnia. I'm joined by Dr. Heather Prayer-Patterson, who's a health psychologist. She received her doctorate degree in clinical psychology from the University of Alabama at Birmingham and then completed fellowship training in health psychology at the Cleveland Clinic. She has worked with multidisciplinary teams, including with pain management, um, sleep clinics, cancer, bariatrics, and primary care. Dr. Prayer Patterson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dr. Berquist. I'm excited to talk about sleep because more and more, um, at least in my clinic in internal medicine, we see a lot of people just having trouble falling asleep, staying asleep. I think the rule has become head hits the pillow and then the mind starts to drift to the to-do list. Definitely. And and how technology has started to take over, we see more and more and more sleep issues. Yeah. And and do you think it's the technology, the technology plus our lives getting busier? Like, why is there so much problem now with sleep and why are people suffering so much? I definitely think um, technology has allowed us to multitask more. And then so we're cramming so much more in and then cramming more into hours that we're supposed to be winding down before sleep or actually in the bed physically doing things, multitasking, TV, texting, social media, work. And those are all not the best pairings for what we're supposed to be doing in that space of bed. Yeah, so you do a lot of work with the um, behavioral treatment. So mm-hmm. let's take the scenario that someone comes to you who is just, you know, every night, 2 a.m., wakes up and is really having trouble going back to sleep, and they're tired all day, and they don't necessarily want to do medications or open to it. What are some options for people mm-hmm. in this situation? So first, I would... I would wonder how long they've been dealing with these um, middle of the night wakings. Um, For the average person, that happens from time to time, depending on how many stressors are going on. Sleep can be affected, but then the natural course, the body sort of heals itself. And these things can go away within two weeks. Um, So the first thing is reassuring people that this is normal. It's a normal reaction to what's going on. And then sometimes it's better just to let it be and not do too much because doing too many changes can actually make the sleep issue worse. So if their sleep issues have been going on for weeks and weeks and, you know, definitely more than three months, that's when we sort of technically diagnose it as insomnia. That's when for sure they probably need more intervention. And when you say intervention, like what's a good starting point? You know, a lot of people start with kind of the sleep hygiene, mm-hmm. trying to avoid caffeine later in the day and avoiding late night meals. Yeah. Starting so, you know, honestly, sleep hygiene um, by itself is not a standalone treatment that will cure insomnia. I'm so glad you said that. No, it will not. Have 
been there, done that, and mm-hmm. still struggle. Yeah, that's what I see. I see they did these things, caffeine, when to do exercise, um, the, you know, when to do their meals, These and, and it does nothing for their sleep issues. Now, for this person that's having a little bit of disturbance for a couple of weeks, changing some of those things could actually help them um, because their issue isn't severe, you know, and they might be making changes like that anyway um, in some of their eating habits or caffeine habits. So it could be helpful. But for someone with true insomnia, it, it, it does nothing. Yeah. And, and why is that? Because by that point, by the three month or more point, there are many other factors involved with the sleep issue than just whatever the initial trigger was, which could be a work crisis or coming from, you know, um, a trip that was, you know, several hours, a country several hours away or time zones away. Um, But by that point where it's been perpetuated, there's so many other things involved, such as, you know, um, poor conditioning or how they associate the bed with sleep. That usually is involved. Um, You know, their sleep cycle or the time that they're sleeping, they're waking up, they're going in bed usually has changed because they're, they're, you know, um, doing anything they can to try to fix the problem, but it's in the wrong direction. So they're either getting in bed too early or they're thinking, you know what, well, let me just sleep even later to make up. And these things really wreak havoc on what our natural sleep process is supposed to be. And how do you help people start to get on the right track? Like what are the first yeah. steps? So the very first step, if someone is coming and um, they've been dealing with this for, you know, more than three months, usually I see people it's been going on. It could be it could actually be a year or more. It could be going on. The very first thing is they must complete a sleep log. I really have to know what's going on because our guesstimate of what we're sleeping is not going to be that accurate. You know, thinking if I ask someone, well, what do you sleep or how many hours? They're going to remember the worst moments. (laughs) They're not going to remember everything in detail. Um, So I really need to know what's going on. So very first session, you know, um, I give them just some general guidance about things and education, but the work doesn't start until they come back with a sleep log. Um, So ideally, I like two weeks worth of um, sleep data, but I will accept one week, depending on how distressed the person is. They might not be able to wait two weeks, Um, but at least with seven days, I can then calculate how much time they're actually sleeping in bed by looking at what their um, wake time is, their actual bedtime, and that will help me set a time in bed prescription. That's what we call, so your sleep schedule. And, you know, um, the two things that actually help cure um, insomnia, what the research shows us is helping people control that time in bed that they're spending and only um, being in bed when they're actually asleep. So a person could be um, laying in their bed, you know, eight hours, but technically they're only sleeping maybe six of those. Well, we want to only put them in the bed for that amount of time that they are actually sleeping to get rid of all the other noise going on. You know, that amount of time in there that they're worrying about, am I going to fall back asleep? Am I going to get to sleep? Am I going to wake up earlier again? All of that creates this arousal in the body that gets our nervous system worked up and fights the natural process of sleep where we're supposed to be calm, you know, um, all our processes are slowed down so we can drift off to sleep. And so um, 
by having them just stay in bed that time that sort of helps get rid of that what if the six hours is broken up yeah it's like two hours then four hours or then one hour then two hours good question get out of bed or how do you- exactly so it doesn't matter if the sleep is broken up most people i see yeah they're waking up four or five times a night it just depends so with that that's where um the stimulus control part or controlling, you know, that worked up feeling that we have because of worrying, you know, all the the mind racing. We try to remove that out of the bed. And and so we're trying to control any activity in the bed. We don't want that to happen. We only want calm, you know, um, relaxed um, state in the bed. So that's where, yes, I would tell them to get up. Um, go to their nest. So that's the space that they create outside of their room where, you know, they could do um, some activities for a little while. Like they could watch a little TV. You know, I, ideally, I like them to maybe read something not too interesting where they can't put it down um, or listen to music. No, you know, cell phone because the tendency would have it up too close to the face. That light might actually work against, you know, what we're trying to do. They might get caught up in looking at things on their phone. And that's going against sort of letting the body settle down. Um, So once they're in their nest, maybe 20, 30 minutes, then I have them go back into their bed and try to sleep again. And when should a person get out of bed? Like I know with the sleep hygiene, we mm-hmm. say we'll try for 20 minutes and then get up and maybe go listen to music. Yeah. That now that rule still applies. That's that's the recommendation. I tell people about 20 minutes. Okay. If not, get out. Exactly. Do something else. Do something else and then come back. You know, the goal of this is um, to remove all of that worrying about sleep, the extra thoughts, the racing thoughts, so that we take that out of the bed and it's no longer paired with the bed. So we're retraining the brain so when it walks back into the room, it's thinking, oh, we're going to go to sleep now because there's nothing else paired with that room. There's no struggle. There's no fighting with sleep. There's no tossing and worrying about tossing and turning. So we have to remove that. And, you know, ideally doing um, the stimulus control part in about two weeks, the um, the bed can be sufficiently paired again with sleep if they do it properly. So getting up after 20 minutes, if they're still laying there awake and thinking, um, and then returning maybe after 20 or 30 minutes. And then what's the next step? Because six hours is not enough. Mm-hmm. Work on so yes, I was saying before that the two things that research has shown us that help actually cure insomnia is controlling all that stimuli or activity that's going on in the room, in the bed, and then the sleep restriction, which I, I try to phrase it um, in a, I guess, a less negative sounding way um, to people that see me. So I'll say sleep efficiency training. So that's the amount of time that they're actually in bed. And we want that to be as close to 100 that they're in bed and they're actually sleeping. Um, so those are the two things that actually will cure it. So the first step is trying to control the activity in the bedroom. And then that's that time in bed prescription. So if they're sleeping six hours, no matter if it's broken up, that's what they're going to do. So I'll give them six hours plus I'll add on an extra 30 minutes because it could take 20, 30 minutes to fall asleep. That's pretty normal. And so now their time in bed is six and a half hours. So, you know, then I would start by, you know, looking at their logs and the average wake time that they have. That's what we'll set. 
as their wake time, and then we'll go back six hours. So if they're waking at you know 8 a.m. on average, then they're going to be going to bed probably like about 1.30. And so, you know, that is the part where I'll tell someone you have to stay up till 1.30. They're thinking, oh, my goodness, how am I going to do that? I'm going to be tired. Then I'll, or I'll never get to sleep. And I'll remind them what we're trying to do is resetting the brain. And that the longer that you're actually awake, you're building up this drive to be able to go to sleep more. And so I'll, that, you know, I'll reassure them that I promise you, you're going to be so sleepy by 1.30, you're going to be wanting to get in that bed. And we want to put that good sleep drive in that bed so you can fall right asleep very quickly and get deeper, better quality of sleep. And usually they'll say, you know, I'll ask them, would you rather have you know, eight, you know, hours of eh, decent sleep, or would you rather have six and a half hours of good quality, deep sleep? They usually say, I want the deep sleep. Oh, we all want to <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. And how about relapse? You know, it mm-hmm. seems like people may be fine for a short while, but it's so easy to get back in a rut with sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So for one, I usually see people for at minimum about eight weeks because and and I'll see them about every two weeks. Um, That's a sufficient time, I would say, to really ingrain some of these behaviors and habits. And so from that point, they're usually very well invested that they'll keep them up um, and that we sort of reset how, you know, the brain is sleeping to fight against a relapse, but you know, things happen in in life. Another big stressor, a major work event or a major family event or or a death or something like that can happen. And that can, you know, um, cause a relapse. So again, it's, you know, they can come back in Usually people have the the knowledge and they'll know, well, first, let me not try to do too much with my sleep, but let me start by being consistent with my wake time, my sleep time, and let me go from there. Let me make sure that I'm not doing extra activity in the bed and I'm removing that. And, you know, let me be sure to do this for at least two weeks because that probably will prevent me from falling into actual insomnia. And how about for people who just have so much on their brain that they just can't quiet their mind? Yes. Good question. So one of the other big things I'll have um, patients do is create a buffer zone. So that's this period of time, maybe about 30 minutes, depending on the person, maybe up to 45 minutes before they're actually going to start their bedtime routine. And that's that settling down period because they need a little extra time um, to engage in something, distract. Um, That can quiet the mind away from whatever they're thinking about. They can do some relaxation exercises during that time. So I'll teach them um, to do slow, deep breathing or other things like autogenics, thinking about the body being heavy and warm, some muscle relaxation exercises. These things really actively help the body to calm down. Um, And so doing that for about half an hour or so usually helps to reduce some of that mind racing, that agitation in the body to help them be able to now, okay, I'm, I'm more prepared to get to sleep. What if they get up at 2 in the morning and their mind is racing? Same thing, same exercise? Yes. So 
Um, if it's the if it's in the middle of the night, honestly, one of the, the best things is for them. Usually they're going to be worrying about something. It might be what they have to do the next day or something or what they didn't finish the day before. So I'll have them do a I call it a constructive worry exercise. Basically, get out a piece of paper, you know, divide it in half on one side. You're going to write down, you know, what are these immediate worries I ha- I'm thinking about right now? You know, list them all out on the other side of the page. You know, is there something I could think of very quickly of? you know what to do about that and this is an exercise that doesn't need to take them more than 10 minutes to do and that usually helps to sort of um, download the worries out of the brain onto some paper so that they know okay I've thought about it I don't need to hold it in my mind anymore and I kind of started to work on a plan and I mean that does provide relief how long for people who find that they do their best thinking in the middle of the night? Um, I've heard that. Awesome ideas. Like, is there a time where it's just okay to go with it? And definitely, um, if they're if that's sort of their personality and they've been doing that, I would say instead of trying to fight and ignore it, get up, write it down, um, and then go back to sleep. They'll probably be able to get to sleep very quickly. So there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And um, and what are, you know, you mentioned some of the techniques to kind of quiet the mind. I want to go back and revisit mm-hmm. some of them. Can you maybe go through some of these techniques in a little mm-hmm. more detail? Sure. So the breathing exercise, it's a diaphragmatic breathing. So it's pretty much using your diaphragm, which is a thin muscle just under your your lungs, separating and you know, um, your chest and lungs from your, um, you know, stomach and intestines. But when we use that and really expand it to help the, the lungs fill fully with air, that is actually a signal to the brain that you don't want to be in this worked up or aroused state. And it will help the brain turn on that the proper nervous system to help quiet down the heart rate, the blood pressure, muscle tension. And so just by doing breathing, we can get a relaxation response all throughout the body. So the other technique is autogenics. It's just a term meaning that you're, you know, on your own, you're doing something to regulate your body processes. So by, you know, um, imagining um, or thinking about the body being very heavy, limp, and then also warm, these are two things we usually associate with being relaxed. Um, and by doing that, people can actually will themselves to feel warmer. Um, I have actually done that with people who have um, um, issues with cold hands, and they would sort of constantly think about their hands warming up. And if you um, strap on a temperature gauge, you could see that their hands are actually warming up. And so that's um, turning on that same um, nervous system that helps to sort of relax the body. And then the third one I was talking about, it's technically called progressive muscle relaxation, where you just start at one part of the body, let's say your forehead, and you gently tense and hold, and then you allow that muscle to relax. And you do this throughout the body, you know, going in a progressive manner, forehead, cheeks, jaw, shoulders, arms, back, all all the way down to your feet. That causes a general sense of relaxation too because you get the the sensation of tensing the muscle, but then the the relaxation you want to keep that going. You want the the muscle to stay in that relaxed state. And so then you're sort of willing your body to do that. 
And with all these techniques and the reinforcement mm-hmm. to create this better sleep um, association, do you find that people need to work with someone directly? Can they do this on their own? That's a good question. So um, there are now um, different online CBTI or cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia online programs. And you know, for for a lot of people, they probably work very well if they're very diligent person who can um, who is really good with self instruction. For some people, though, doing that might not be quite enough because they don't know how to um, sort of look into a sleep log and look for. Um, I guess the the cheat times or the loopholes where they weren't as consistent. And that's where someone who can help point that out, you know, uh, reinforce the rationale of why to be diligent with this, um, incorporate some of, you know, tailor some of these um, relaxation exercises to them um, that the more personal um, treatment might work better for some people. And what is the role of medication in all this? Good question. I would say probably 70 80 to 80% of people come to me are already on a medication or have tried something. Cases. <laughs> yes, yes. Because honestly, um, and I'm definitely not opposed to medication, um, for a lot of people, um, their sleep issues are a temporary thing, and then that can help sort of be a reset um, for their sleep. But for the ones that there's a lot of other things going on, it, um, you know, they've been on it for months and months or maybe even years by the time I see them. And so we have a conversation. What is their goal with the medication? You know, usually people are afraid to stop because they think it's their sleep is going to be ruined. And I tell them, well, I definitely don't want you to abruptly stop right now. Um, because I don't want you to go through withdrawal symptoms or anything like that. But we can work in a taper, you know, as we're working on the behavioral modification part, we can start sort of tapering down. So I'll do that often with patients. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I guess what I'm saying is I don't think they, that medication and then my piece, the behavioral side, they don't have to be fighting each other. They can go hand in hand. I do see medication can, you know, in the right instances, short term can be a good bridge for more behavioral treatment. Do you think the quality of sleep is different with medication or without? Do you notice a difference? I do for sure. And patients tell me that they do notice a difference. Um, They're not, yeah, they, they know they sleep. They don't tend to say that it is very restorative sleep because I don't believe they're cycling through the different stages of sleep um, as they would if they did not have the sleep issue and weren't on the medication. So overall, it is helping them to get enough hours of sleep to function. Uh, most insomniacs, they're they're more wired and tired during the day, so they're not sleepy. They're just kind of, you know, very agitated or feel sort of on all day, um, but they're doing their work. So if the medication can help them get enough hours to reduce the wire tired feeling, um, they're, you know, they're getting good sleep, um, but it's probably not as restorative as they want it to be. And how about travel and sleep? So increasingly, a lot of people are traveling for work. 
different bed, different hotel. Oh, yes, yes. Any tips for people who this is their reality? It's not optional. Anything they can do to keep a good sleep pattern? It's very difficult to try to um, prevent jet lag. Um, So what I tell people is don't worry about it. You know, honestly, if you can sleep on the plane, do that because they ask, is it okay to sleep on the plane? Is it not okay? I say sleep on the plane. Um, You know, depending on, it doesn't matter if you're going forward or backward. Try to get as much rest beforehand um, because that will help them acclimate to the time zone. The best thing that they can do, though, is not to um, schedule activities the moment they step off the plane. That's a big problem. So it doesn't matter if this is work, if you can try to incorporate a little bit of some downtime before the day starts, and especially if it's vacation, just sort of hang out, relax. I mean, um, if they can take a nap, take a nap. That's probably the only time I recommend people do naps. <laughs> I was ask you when you said, you know, sleep on the plane. Yes. So we can maybe circle back to the nap. Yes. So, um, so, but in terms of um, taking trips, it basically don't overschedule yourself so that your body can try to acclimate a little bit um, to the time zone. Now, as far as naps in general, um, that's when, you know, that's a big thing that most people I see with insomnia are doing because, you know, by the middle of the day, they're, you know, they're, they are tired and, you know, they think, well, let me just get the nap in because they are more able to fall asleep because um, they've been deprived of sleep, you know. I mean, this has been going on for months or longer. Ideally, naps are bad. Why is that? They're bad because they actually rob us of that natural drive to build sleep throughout the day. The average person needs about 16 to 18 hours of alertness or being awake to build up enough drive to go to sleep. So there's these different processes in the brain that happen. And so that's about a sufficient amount of time that we need to be awake and doing things. So not just awake and sitting in a, on the couch, awake, moving around, ex- expending energy, doing something active. And so that will coincide at, you know, the same time at night, then we will, we will naturally um, reach our max sleepiness and be able to fall asleep easier. So naps actually rob us of building up that drive to go to sleep during the day. How about if a person is just so overtired that sometimes they're so overtired that it makes it harder when it's nighttime to fall asleep because they're so desperate for sleep that I think it puts a lot of pressure um, on my Mm -hmm. sleep tonight. I can't do another night. I've Mm -hmm. already gone three nights without good sleep, and tomorrow's a really important day. Like, is there any role at all in just having a nap just help take some of that off? So I would say the main rule is it's okay to do a safety nap. That's what we call it. So if a person has to drive or... um, they're doing anything where they are so exhausted and tired that they will put themselves in danger, then yes, take a nap. But it needs to be limited. 30 minutes or so, no more than that. So that's a part of sleep hygiene. That's one part that does definitely stick. Um, and that's sufficient enough time for people um, to have, a you know, to cycle through some sleep cycles and then 
be able to wake up and get themselves home safely or to wherever they're going. But if they're just, you know, um, they're just sick and tired of the sleepless nights, that's where I'll say we really need to focus on the behavioral modification part. And if a person's created a sleep deficit, like mm-hmm. it's gone one week where they only got four or five hours, is there a role for naps in that scenario to kind of build or replace a sleep debt? Honestly, no. Um, you know, humans are no naps. naps. (laughs) Uh, You know, honestly, humans are very resilient um, creatures. And there's a lot of people I see once I look at their sleep log, they're actually only sleeping about four or five hours. And it's amazing. We can still function on that amount of sleep. You know, it might be um, our functioning might be reduced, obviously, but we still function. We can get up, we can go to work, we can get things done. Um, So, you know, we're more resilient. And then I remind people, you've been dealing with this, some of them for months and months, maybe even years, and you're still standing. Um, So, you know, let's take the power away from this thought of the nap, um, because that's not going to get you to the goal. Usually their goal is they want to sleep longer and they want better quality of sleep. So, I, you know, I let them know naps will rob you of the quality. Think of it as if we're building up this sleep drive throughout the day and we're making deposits every hour that we're awake in like a bank. So if we prematurely make a, uh, a withdrawal, that's going to leave us at a deficit when it's time to go to bed. And how about people who repeatedly, you know, are getting less than seven hours? Are there some people that you find just don't need the seven hours? Or is it just that they're so used to not functioning at 100% that they don't realize that they would do better with more sleep. That's a good question. I get that a lot. Um, This idea that eight hours is the ideal. No, not at all. Some people are fine on six to seven hours of sleep. And they tell me they wake up feeling refreshed. And if that's their perception, then that's good. Some people actually need more sleep. Some people need maybe nine to 10 hours. That's just what their body needs to feel regulated. So I would say it depends on how they're rating the quality of sleep. The number is just, is is not as significant. And now most people I see want to be able to get by with less sleep Mm -hmm. is that trained or is that just innate i think that they're if they're wanting to sleep less but their body's saying something different i think they're trying to train themselves that way and you know to some degree i think you can um again you can condition yourself to do a lot of things you can condition yourself to go off of less sleep as long as you're getting enough restorative sleep to function we can function on less you know now overall i don't you know we'll just have to see where they are in a few months yeah, that that's very helpful. And any other tips or pointers, scenarios that you encounter that you find are really challenging points um, for people to work through? I would say, um, well, definitely when I introduce the idea of the sleep restriction or sleep efficiency training is um, getting through the fears um, that they're, if they limit themselves in bed that they're never going to get good sleep that gets into some of those worries um the cognitive things that they're that are associated with the insomnia um and so that's where that's the big 
um, cognitive piece. That's where that comes in in CBTI is we actually work through, you know, how these thoughts, they trigger negative emotions, which trigger negative behaviors. And so we actually need to modify the thoughts and make them more realistic so that we can feel differently and do differently. And so then that's where I'll really stress, you know, let's modify some of these thoughts you have about sleep, lack of sleep, um, your functioning. I would say, you know, number one, people say, you know, I just can't sleep. I can't sleep. And no matter what I do, I'll pull out their log and I'll say, wait, wait a minute. You know, according to this, look at this day. You actually slept a good solid like three or four hours here. That's sleep. Or this, you know, at one point and then they maybe woke up and slept some more. Or this day, look, you actually slept a good six hours this day. You can sleep. So maybe really what you're trying to tell me is that you just want to be able to sleep consistently and feel refreshed when you wake up. That sounds a lot differently than saying I can't sleep. Mm -hmm. Those are all just great tips and great advice. And this is something everyone can do, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody that, or have you ever had people that try the CBTI, the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, and it just doesn't work? Or is this something that you find that it's just, if you're motivated and you work hard at it, everyone can do? So... I believe that if people really work hard, they can retrain their body and their brain to sleep better. There are some people that um, CBTI um, would not be ideal for. So if there's major significant um, psychological issues going on, like post-traumatic stress or some deep trauma that's pretty active, they're not a good candidate because the sleep restriction part could actually make their trauma stuff worse. And we don't want to do that. Um, it could make the arousal in the body worse. Um, people who are have some sort of substance abuse issue, they're probably not going to be good candidates. They need to address the substance use issue because that's probably a big factor with the insomnia, the sleep issues. Um, and then certain other mental health diagnoses might need um, to take precedence like bipolar disorder, um, definitely severe, severe depression needs to take precedence being treated first um, because that will probably rectify the sleep issue. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, Dr. Prayer Patterson, this has been such a great conversation. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to talk today. It's been great having you on. Thank you. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.